Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore. I'm your host, Aaron Zober, covering lifestyles in the world of real food. This is the first podcast of 2023. I start off the new season talking about what else? Locally sourced meat. My guest is Nick Wallace, co-founder of 99 Counties. 99 Counties delivers local and sustainable beef, pork, and poultry to the front doors of people living in the Midwest. Nick, welcome to the program. Thank you. Appreciate you having me and looking forward to it. It's a pleasure to have you on. This is the appropriate omnivore. And I think what a more appropriate way to kick off the podcast season of the new year. Absolutely. Always good resolution time. And usually that always involves people's health, right? Totally. So let's get going. Learn about 99 counties. How to get started. Well, actually, my journey started many years ago, more than two decades ago. I actually had, speaking of health, I had my own health crisis when I was 19. I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. I was in college. I was playing college sports at the time, so none of that made sense. And my dad was kind of in the organic industry working with farmers. And he was at a conference where the president of the Weston A. Price Foundation, Sally Fallon, was speaking. And she was talking, remember this is back in 99, 2000, 20 some years ago, she was talking about the correlation of how our health is connected to food, food is medicine, and how we had denatured and removed ourselves from what really nutrient-dense foods were. So he was very excited to come home and shut her family down and say, Nick, I think we know why you had cancer. I think it's the food. And then from that day forward, our family made a huge change into eating healthier, farming healthier, and seeking out food as medicine. I like that story. Sally Fallon was a lot of what got me into this too, and I'm now a co-leader of a Weston Price chapter in Pasadena. Oh, great. Yeah. Small world then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think for a lot of people, they got into it with organizations such as the Weston Price. I think they've been wonderful just to teach us about knowing more of where our food comes from and choosing responsibly when we look for our meats. Yeah, that is the key to the future. And I think that's where we're headed. I think so too. And in terms of your business, what do you look for in terms of farms to partner with? Well, so I've been doing this for 20 years. I have an organic farm myself, but I knew shortly after I started our meat business, and it was called Wallace Farms at that time. We ran under Wallace Farms for 20 years. It has to be a farmer who has a mindset that, as Gabe Brown put it years ago on a podcast, I believe, when he said, you get up in the morning and you get tired of killing things and you get up one morning and you're like, you know what, I'm going to figure out how to make things thrive and live in a better system and ecosystem. So that's the number one rule is we know we don't believe in anything that ends in C-I-D-E, right? No pesticides, herbicides, fungicides. We're looking for a biological system instead of a chemical. So we're moving from chemical farming to biological farming. And that's the number one most important thing when you want to talk to a farmer. Yes, Gabe Brown, another one of my heroes. So you're listening to a lot of people that have also inspired me. And I know that one of the things that Gabe Brown really is pushing now is regenerative agriculture. How would you define regenerative agriculture? Good question. I would say there's commodity farming, or commodity as a term, or production agriculture. Then there has been a term called sustainable for a long time, still used, 
But I think we've moved beyond that. And now regenerative is the big buzzword. To me, commodity farming is depleting. It's always pulling and taking. Yes, they put inputs back in, but it's more of an input-output system. Sustainable is not a bad word, and it's not a bad practice. But it's sustainable is, in my mind, is if you look at a graph, it's just a straight line, right? We're just sustaining where we're at. Regenerative base word is to generate. And to me, that means taking the baseline of everything living, your ecosystem, your microbiomes, and improving them, right? To allow the system to compound itself into more and more health. And that's what I think regenerative means. I feel sustainable itself is a very broad term. It covers so many different things, organic, regenerative, local. So you need more specific terms. Regenerative, I think, is the direction we're going in. I know you talk about regenerative for your company. Are you looking into any type of regenerative certification? Another great question. I would say the two organizations I think that are probably carrying the most water and doing the best work would be the Savory Institute and Rodell Institute out in Pennsylvania. And they have a Midwest Rodell now here actually in Iowa. And I think they've got some other pockets across the country. They're really trying to make a move. I would say there's so many labels and so many certifications out there that the question is, do they uphold all the integrity that you want, but does it also allow the farmer to, to have more freedom and more leeway to farm and operate how they see fit versus trying to force them into a certain set of protocols and or paperwork or verifications that may or may not fit their farm? That's a pretty broad statement I just made there. But what I think the key is, is actually transparency. If you can connect with your customer and I'm not talking trying to go into the grocery store model and work through those channels. I'm just saying if I know my family or my customer directly and I can show them and tell them where their food came from and document it and introduce them to the farmer, I want to create a relationship of trust and that transparency that we don't have to go through necessarily all the paperwork and the verification and creating this box. Because who's going to set the terms officially for what regenerative looks like? I think Rodell would like to, and maybe they will, and Savory as well. But what if you're 95% on board with those, but you're not quite there on a couple aspects? Does that mean that we shouldn't support those farmers or we can't allow those farmers to produce nutrient-dense food. So that's kind of a concern with certifications. The butterfly is the big one, the non-GMO project, right? But the butterfly can be on a package, and I don't want people to assume that just because the non-GMO butterfly is on the package means it's nutrient-dense food. They still might be spraying glyphosate on a cover crop and then planting non-GMO seeds, right? So I don't think it tells the whole story, I guess is my point. So I'd rather just have the customer really get to know their farmers and let us in Iowa and Chicagoland be a conduit to let that happen. Those are some very good points that you brought up. I know that that has led to some confusion, the whole non-GMO project. It's great that it shows that everything is certified. They, they didn't use the GMO seeds by Monsanto or other companies like DuPont. But a lot of people do think that non-GMO means organic, which actually it doesn't. So there are a number of different labels. And yes, I would say that any of these products, as many labels as we see on them, people want to just still know more transparency and really know what actually goes on the farm. They want to look beyond the label. In what ways do you feel you're transparent with your customers in terms of the products you provide? 
Well, we haven't got all of our processors on board yet, but when we launched, we had a very good success rate with our poultry. So all of our chickens and turkeys have the farmer and the county that the birds were raised in. And so whenever you buy chicken breast or drums or thighs from us, when you're pulling out the package from your freezer for cooking that night, you have full access to who that farmer is. So we'd like to move that way with pork and beef. We're just not quite there yet. We just need a little more time. And then once you go to our website, you can see the farmers who we work with. It's difficult in one sense, but I think it feels like it should be easier in another. And so we are moving to just pretty much the labeling aspect is where I would like to see it by the end of 2023 video stories and letting us tell that story. So directly on the package, you can see the farm and the county where it came from? Yep. We're a third of the way there. We've got our poultry done and then we need to get our other two species. We just started carrying eggs as well. So that's also on the curtains. Yes. And you're talking also about video. So on the website, people can see videos of the farms where these are raised. Yep. We have four farmer videos done. We'll be doing more in 2023. Yeah. I think to me that's important because there's a lot of companies where they don't have any kind of label. And what I like to do is do my due diligence, see do they have any kind of video online or social media that shows where I can see these farms. And I think a lot of people, even with the labels, they want to see exactly what the farms look like. I know also farm visits, a lot of people do that, myself included. A number of these farms, will they allow the customers to go and visit them? Yeah, I think so. We don't have any official farm tour dates set up, but we do work with some Amish and Mennonite farmers, and there may be a little barrier of interaction there, but it's something in the future we'd like to move to. I'm sure there are a number of different restrictions for different farms. I mean, you have many farms, so I would be hard-pressed to find that, yeah, that every single one would allow tours, but I think if certain of them do, that's a start. Yeah, the point is, I don't think anything has to do with biosecurity, right? So a lot of these big confinements, they won't let people on because they're worried about transfer of contaminations. But we feel like we're all going to be connected to our food. That means people should be interacting with those farms, seeing it, feeling it, touching the soil, being grounded with the soil. So I am all about more interaction with farm and not less. Yes, we definitely need to go in the interaction of more. And a number of these farms that I know, there's a lot of great farms. Some of them, for one reason or another, don't allow visitation. Sometimes it's because they're leasing the property and it's up to the owner. And there are many reasons. So there's other ways you can learn about the farms, but certainly going in the direction of farm visits, I think is what we would like to see all farms have eventually. Yeah. And if we do our job with the marketing, we want to make it interactive enough that you'll feel like you know the farms and you visited the farm, whether even though it might have been only on your phone or your computer. And I think that's where the future is headed too. Me too. There are a number of products that I buy. I haven't visited their farm, but when I've seen their YouTube videos or I've seen these elaborate photos they put on social media, I do feel like I know the farm because I say, okay, that's how I want the farms to look like where my food comes from, where I see these animals outside grazing and happy. Right. Yep, for sure. And going back into regenerative agriculture, I know that it's become much more of a buzzword for a long time, I think, in terms of labels. The one that I feel like was the most sought after was this USDA organic, which I think had a lot of advantages and it raised the awareness of what organic is. It also had some limitations. So now regenerative agriculture is what people are looking for. Do you think this is the future of food and what's essentially going to be replacing when people look for something organic, they'll now look for regenerative. I have reservations about where the regenerative movement is going. I think we're at a very important time because 
there are a lot of people that think that being no-till is regenerative and that's the high bar, right? So as long as you're rotating crops and you're no-tilling and making the soil better, and you could argue that that's just organic matter increasing and maybe biology, maybe not. The measuring stick on that is different. But my problem with where we're headed right now is that it is regenerative going to be hijacked, right? Is it going to be hijacked by the no-till movement that still is spraying chemicals, right? Yeah, they might be spraying less than they have before. And I'm in Iowa, right? So all we do in Iowa is grow corn and soybeans for the most part. A lot of times in April and May, you see a beautiful field of green cereal rye cover crop emerge. And I mean, it's gorgeous. The whole field, we're talking hundreds of acres of this four inch to six inch, even can get taller green material cover crop. And then sure enough, about 10 days in after it's really lush like that, you start to see it dying because they've sprayed it with glyphosate. Right? They're burning it down and then they no-till it. And to me, I don't think that that should have any label, any grain that's been grown there and moved through the system. I don't think that should be considered a regenerative farm. And I think that's where the big debate is right now. That's probably not a very popular opinion in circles of farming conferences and organic and a lot of these workshops that are taking place across Iowa and Midwest right now. Now, I'm not saying that's as bad as heavy till and GMO, but it still concerns me because glyphosate, as you probably know, and maybe your audience too, Roundup glyphosate is just a detriment to the microbiome of the soil. It's an antibiotic. It chelates micronutrients. I think 20, 30, 40 years, I don't know how long it'll take. I think we're going to look back and see glyphosate is probably one of the worst things that we've allowed our farmers to use. It'll be up there with DDT. So coming back to your question, I think that's my only concern with regenerative is that the standards aren't high enough. Right. There is regenerative and there's organic. And then you talked about the Rodale Institute where their program is regenerative and organic together. There's a lot of questions about it. It's still new. We're still deciding what it is with these different programs of different terms of certification. My personal belief is I think it would be hard to be truly regenerative if you are using glyphosate. And I kind of wonder how you'd be able to get a regenerative certification if you're doing that. That's my feeling on it, but there's also still a lot to be studied. Yeah, I would be in favor of regenerative and organic. The only questions I would have for the marketplace in general is, so it takes two years to get to the organic certification. Technically it's three, but it's three years from any chemical spraying. So usually in year three, by the time you harvest your fall grain, you're organic. The question I have is how do we incentivize and protect and support those farmers that are in the transition stages? That is the big hurdle right now. And I'm not necessarily for government handouts, crop insurance program. It's a little bit of a welfare state with farming as it is now. But at the same time, we do throw a lot of money around. Should we be giving large incentives to farmers that are moving their land into organic and or regenerative? I would argue to say, if you threw an obscene amount of money at these farmers, would that make the largest difference? Maybe, maybe not. So 99 counties in a way, we're not mandating that it's a certified organic grain. We're mandating that it is a non-chemical sprayed grain. So certified transition is allowed in our program. And the reason 
I wanted to do that was because for that reason I just said, I want farmers to feel like they can get from commodity to organic without bleeding out, right? Because if we don't do that, we're never going to make change. We haven't made hardly any change in 20 years. Maybe the public has, but I'm still looking at 97.5% of Iowa farmland, 26 million acres or so is still corn and soybeans. And so how do we move that into more diversified grains and how do we get away from chemicals? And so we have to reward the farmer that's willing to go out on the edge and move their land to transition. I know that's a major issue with the organic certification is having to fully remove everything from the farm to then have it go organic. And I like how you bring up that where you're from, two of the most heavily subsidized crops, corn and soybeans, are grown there. Is that another reason of what inspired you to get into this business you're doing now? For there to be things in Iowa other than corn and soybeans and actually to be a great livestock in the area too. Sure. As I alluded to with my health crisis, we moved into grass-fed beef and then we realized, hey, we have a century family farm that needs to be taken out of chemical farming. Why not do it ourselves? We were working with a good friend of ours who was raising grass-fed beef. And for the first three or four years, when I was much younger and out of college and I went to culinary school, and this was in Colorado, I want to move back to Iowa and take over the Century Family Farm and let's start looking at being a farmer. My dad was a farmer until the mid to late 1980s when the farm crisis hit and interest rates went to 22%, but he still stayed in the farming type community. But that was the reason I got into it. But then once you get into being a farmer, and you're kind of looking at this blank canvas and you start to incorporate, we first did all pasture and hay. And then we started to see earthworms come back and birds. And so then we're like, you know what, we should diversify. And we started doing some oats and we started doing some organic corn. And then we started doing some organic soybeans and then some organic rye. So it's kind of like you start and as long as you can get the equipment and you have the land, it's almost like you want to grow more things. If you stop dictating what you're going to do to the land and you start letting the land kind of tell you it wants more and more diversity, a good farmer generally will listen. And you have this relationship with the land where it's fun, it's rewarding, and it feels right to be adding in more and more seeds and plants and biology and diversity. So I think that's the fun part of farming for me, is to see all the different cycles. I think so too, and to look at the progress of the farm after you've incorporated it in these animals, how it's changed, how things are growing back, it really illustrates the point of having mixed farming. Yeah, I agree. I think farmers that have been doing this long enough, if you go to their farm, you're going to see a lot of living things, a lot of phases, a lot of cycles, and generally a lot of different animals too. We've touched upon a lot of the future of food. I know we also talked a little on the past of how this got started. So now let's get into the present. What products are currently provided by 99 counties? Right now we are doing beef, pork, and poultry. We just added a little bit of lamb from one of our kind of founding members, Wendy Johnson up in northern Iowa. So we do grass-fed beef. We do natural-raised, outside-raised, non-confinement pork. And we do chickens, broilers, and then we do small batch turkeys from another Northeast Iowa family farm that's been raising turkeys for many generations. And then we just did add eggs outside of Iowa. So this isn't just an Iowa movement. We've got one producer in Minnesota and one in Wisconsin, and then the other 21 are all in Iowa. So essentially, we're trying to restore the heartlands. We don't necessarily have to have the borders of Iowa. Our, we're really just trying to be hyper-local. And to local, can we drive there and back in a day? That's kind of my version of local. So yeah, we've got the full gamut. We'd like to add potentially dairy, 
butter and cheeses in the future. That's a little bit different animal, but that's on the horizon. And then essentially we could move into just being a nutrient dense food company. So we could get into vegetables and preserved goods and fermented goods and so forth. But for right now, we're about three months in and we decided to focus on the core animal products that most people are used to. I love it. I love that you're doing this for the heartland because I do live in Los Angeles now. I lived here for about a little over 20 years, but I am originally from the Midwest. I'm a Clevelander, lived there about the first 22 years of my life. Yep. We're hoping that this kind of creates a spark and we'd be happy to feed that day drive and back in my local definition, covers Chicago, Milwaukee, St. Louis, Kansas City, Omaha, Minneapolis. So there's got to be at least 40 to 50 million people that the state of Iowa can feed easily. That's amazing. You were talking about getting into dairy. Now, would that be 100% grass-fed dairy? Yeah, I believe so. There's some pockets. Again, the Amish Mennonite have been kind of holding that space and they haven't left. A lot of them are producing for Organic Valley. And then there's some smaller, smaller regional local dairies that they produce for that potentially could be either a partnership with us, like Kelowna Organics, Supernatural is a brand that's not too far from us. Instead of trying to reinvent the wheel, maybe we just do a little bit of a partnership there. But those are all conversations that will probably be had here in the year 2023. Kelowna is an amazing company, and I know that they do have a number of farms which are 100% grass-fed. I love their product. It's great when I can find them available to me, their butter and other things. Yeah, they do a nice job. So currently, you're available in the Midwest looking at expanding there. Could you see yourself eventually expanding throughout the whole country? We've talked about this, but if we did, I would say we would bring in the system, but it wouldn't make sense for us to grow all of the food here and ship it all the way across the country to feed Californians. But if we could create this better value-added chain, if you will, and change agriculture in the state of California, 58 counties in California. Why not incorporate regenerative farmers and get them to produce for 58 counties, right? And then there's like 102 in Illinois. So imagine having this regenerative nation, right? Regen nation is kind of a name that coined for a system like that. I like that name. Maybe it does make sense for us to export what we produce really well at the lowest energy unit, which would be maybe grain, right? or maybe it's pork, and maybe we ship that out, and then the, the truck comes back with citrus, right? I can't grow citrus in Iowa, but there's plenty of people that want citrus for their enjoyment and for health. So what if we could create this infrastructure so that we were always moving back and forth with the lowest cost of, say, energy or carbon use, and we're trading with each other, and we create a nation of people that are regenerative and focused on soil health and human health through food. So fun things to think about. We're not quite there yet, but those are the things I think about when I'm sweating it out in the sauna. Right. So there's a possibility of some products going further than normally the 100 mile radius, but it sounds like even if you expand the entire country, you'd want to still have the focus of being local farms. So you'd look at, say, local farms in California for people that live there and other areas. Yeah. Grow local, eat local, right? Most people talk about buy local, but I would say there's no reason why grow local, eat local shouldn't be the thing. There's a term that you're probably familiar with and a lot of people are, is that farmers here have been told for a long time, a lot of times from governments or the corporations, 
that are selling them their seeds and their equipment and chemicals that farmers are feeding the world, right? You've heard that. Oh, well, what do farmers and Iowa do? Oh, we're feeding the world. Right. That's the whole argument. That's the argument of Monsanto, too, the whole feeding the world. Yeah, feeding the world. Well, my two reactions to that would be, did the world ask us to feed it, right? Did the people in Africa say, hey, you know, in Iowa, would you guys feed us? I doubt it. So why don't we empower the people where they live and empower the farmers where they live to grow the food for that region in a regenerative way and so they can feed themselves. Connecting to your soil and through your food is directly going to relate to your health and sustainability and just how local people could prosper. So us feeding the world, one, the world didn't ask us to. And where are we feeding the world? High starch grains that are triple stacked genetically modified, or that's going into confinement pork or feedlot meats that are exported to be dumped on a marketplace when we could be exporting our knowledge and heritage type breeds and ways to connect and give people running water and cleaner systems and maybe building supplies or, well, if anything, just eliminate the people that are stealing the food that they are currently growing, right? If somebody's working hard to grow 20 bushels of a grain in Africa, and they have that, they've spent all year trying to harvest that and bring it to market. And then all of a sudden our food aid airplanes show up and pallets and pallets of that same grain get dumped on the marketplace. What's going to happen to that hard work of that man or woman that grew that 20 bushels of grain, right? That turns what they've done into nothing. So, I mean, it's very complex. I don't mean to get into like geopolitical, but it does get back to if you can grow food locally for the people that live locally, I don't know why we ever went away from it. I do know why, but that's the real question at hand here. And so that's what I'm trying to do in Iowa, right? We have some of the best soils in the world. Arguably, the best soil in the world is in Iowa. And we don't grow food here, here anymore. We're growing food now. Our 23 farmers are growing nutrient-dense food that is really delicious. And my job is to turn customers on to that and have them realize how important it is and how delicious it is and how it can help change the culture in Iowa. I love it. You nailed very much the flaw of this whole feeding the world idea. This is things that I've been saying for years, so I love it. I definitely see a connection of what we do, very similar message. It's everything you said. It's the feeding the world, these crops that they say will feed the world, how much of them do they actually want of these starchy grains and vegetables? And also the problem with feeding the world is, like you said, there's the importance of local. What these crops that are sent all around the world do is they actually hurt then a lot of the local agriculture there. So yeah, everything you said, that's what people need to know when they say, oh, how do you feed the world? Yeah, you feed the world by each county or territory focusing on what can we grow here and what have our ancestors grown here? How did we used to feed ourselves? And we need to get back to that. We were talking a little earlier about Western Price. We were also talking about the idea of some things where you can't grow, you have shipped. So Western Price back in 2019 released a program they call the 50-50 Pledge, where 50% you'll get from local farmers and ranchers, and then the other 50 can come from outside the local area. What do you think of that? I think for where we're at now, we're used to a society that wants what we want, gets what we want. You go into the grocery store and you can get strawberries in January and you get crops out of season. So it's not like we can just turn the dial and move 100 and 
80 degrees in the opposite direction. So I like it because I'm more of an 80-20 rule as it pertains to health food versus maybe ice cream or bag of chips or something. So we're still going to live in the world we're at. But 50-50 sounds really great. And so if you look at that as a caloric intake, if you just switched your meat, I would say that probably would almost take care of the 50 right? Because that's usually center of the plate is your meat and that's your most calories from protein and fat. So I think it's a great idea. And I think it's easy for people to conceptualize. I think it's very obtainable and would stick in people's minds. I think so too. And meat and animal processes, a lot of what the program touched about as they explained, spend at least 50% of your food dollar by purchasing raw milk and raw milk products, eggs, poultry, meat, and produce. So there is also produce you can get from local farmers. Yeah, fully supportive of that. And you talked about how 99 counties could expand into fruits and vegetables. Is there anyone specifically pertaining to what's grown in Iowa and the surrounding areas in the Midwest that you would focus on, or would it just be a general focus on any fruits and vegetables that you could find? For us here, I'm just looking at my garden in general. I have pretty good luck with squash, pumpkins, some root vegetables seem to do well here. We're a little bit more difficult to do like a leafy greens, just because I think it gets pretty hot and we have a shorter season. So I would say, yeah, root vegetables and squashes would be on the top of my list. One of the ideas I've actually had is instead of trying to sell the fresh vegetables in a short window, maybe we harvest everything at peak and we either freeze it or preserve it as best we can and or we turn it into soup because most soups need a base of a bone broth, right? We have plenty of beef bones and chicken and turkey frames for making nutrient-dense bone broth, which you would know as Weston A. Price would tell you that the core to health. So what if we could take all the value-added bones that we would have through our meat program and then use those and complement that within a nutrient-dense peak season vegetable soup? And that plays into some other ideas I have for a nonprofit to help feed kids and some of the people that are disadvantaged and don't have access to healthy food. So instead of trying to sell maybe a specific vegetable, I would say maybe have the vegetables come by way of soup. So just a thought, again, plenty of things to think about here as we move into 2023. I love the soup idea because there aren't right now a lot of truly nutrient-dense soups using grass-fed bone broth or a chicken bone broth from chickens raised in outdoor areas. So we do mean more of those. I think of that as we're in the cold months right now, and I'm looking at writing an article on the best soups to buy and still finding that the options are limited. So I would love that if you'd expand into that. And could you see 99 counties going into other prepared foods too? Yeah, we've talked about pre-cooked meatballs. I think you either have to be really big and you have to have these big production facilities, right? Mass produced. A lot of that's a co-packing thing. But what if we could get to a point where we had our own production kitchen? We could make the soups. We could make small batch artisan type meals or heat and serve things. So like a bolognese sauce for spaghetti. And maybe you'd make the pasta, right? You have eggs, got Iowa grown flour and things like that. Endless possibilities. As I always say, it just takes a little more time and money is usually what anybody needs to bring an idea to fruition. Meatballs is certainly a popular prepared food product. I've seen that do well in terms of the frozen foods 
that one is popular. Also, frozen beef patties. I know that's another popular one. Yeah, and we do have patties. We have some sausages, really great breakfast sausages and brats and value-added sausages, a couple different kinds of bacon. So we're value-adding as much as we can, and we're working. We have a new artisan small batch processor that we're vetting now in southern Wisconsin, too. So we always have the antennas up for somebody who can really be an artist in the middle, right? So I've said in some of my other videos, it starts with the soil, and then the farmer is tending the soil and pulling things from the soil, whether it's animals or grains or forage. And then somebody's got to do something with that raw food, right? The meat, milk, eggs, vegetables. Somebody in the middle's got to usually touch that raw material to turn it into the next level of food for the consumer. So artisan processors are just as much a key to all of this as the farmer. And we've lost a lot of that. Used to be where there was a lot, the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker, right? That was what small towns had, all of them, at least one, if not more. And so now in Iowa, it's one of the reasons I started 99 Counties is you drive through these small towns and you don't see much of that anymore, right? We've really lost the small artisan producer. So it's time to bring that back. We have. I like to see all three of those brought back. Of course, the butcher, but yes, also the baker using an organic flour and also preferably making sourdough. And the candlestick maker, actually. With that, I think of beekeepers and making beeswax candles. I encourage really everyone to use because of the oil that's used in regular candles and the toxins that they emit into the earth. So all three of those things, I say, actually, we need to bring back. At some point, I want to do for my local Weston Price chapter action event of a butcher, a baker, and a candlestick maker. Yeah, you're right about the candlestick maker. It kind of just goes with the rhyme. But yeah, bees, California, think about how important bees are for your state. They truck them in from all over the place, right? And so we need to bring back the bees and give them a healthy environment and think about what they offer us. Local honey, unfiltered, unpasteurized is one of the best things you can eat. And then think about the byproduct, like you said, of wax. It is. It's a really beautiful system that we once had. Now we feel like we've dominated nature. We've really put ourselves in this corner of eliminating those healing old world living. We don't have to go back where we have outhouses and dirt floors and no indoor plumbing. We can take the best of what our new world has created, but we could go back and grab those things that really did work and incorporate them into our lives and especially teach our youth about it. And I've got three young kids and I take for granted sometimes I was talking about something the other day and they're like, what? What are you even talking about? I'm like, oh, well, gosh, you guys, you don't even know what it was like to live without all this technology. And I don't think necessarily everything we're doing right now is progress. So Maybe it's time to go back a little bit. I certainly think there's a lot of argument to go back to certain traditions. As Weston Price talks about wise traditions, nourishing traditions, a lot of this is going back. I like that you brought up about local honey. That's very important. You can help with a lot of allergies by eating honey with the area you come from. Is that something that 99 Counties is looking at expanding into is local beekeepers within the areas of your customers? We haven't yet, but we just have had such a busy docket since we launched in November of last year. But now that I'm saying it out loud, I think once I get off this podcast here with you, I think I'm going to fire that up. We're almost getting into, believe it or not, we'll be long before the flowers are blooming, right? So um, yeah, I haven't had bees on my farm yet. I've got some not too far away, but yeah, I think everybody should have a couple hives of bees, right? That doesn't mean they have to take care of them. There are people that will bring you hives and generally it's a crop share type of system where they set up the hive 
hives and then they get half, you get half. So can't argue with that. So time for a honey revolution, I think. Oh, well, I love it. I'm so inspired with this podcast. Like I said at the beginning, I think this is the perfect one to start off the new season, the new year. And as a lot of people, we're still in January, and you're still working on your New Year's resolutions. I think this is one of the most important resolutions you should make is eat more food that's local and become more connected with where your food comes from. Know everything about what you're eating. I would second that. I'm like everybody, right? We get head down, tunnel vision, wrapped into all the things that are on our radar in our little world. And I think we forget about some of the bigger things that maybe we should be thinking about. Before we go, is there anything else that you'd like to let the listeners know about 99 Counties? There's a lot of people that aren't in our area listening right now. We can't get you the products because we don't ship nationwide. But I would say if you do know anybody in Iowa and Chicagoland, if you wouldn't mind just taking a moment and just send them a text with 99counties.com and say, hey, I think these people are trying to do good in the world. And maybe just pass the word like that. We'd take the good energy and the sharing. And I would encourage everybody to just take a moment and pause the Weston A. Price initiative says 50-50, right? Can you go source half of what's in your pantry or refrigerator and just try to make a conscious effort to support those local farmers? Because if we don't, another 10 years goes by, maybe 20, and I don't know how many are left, to be honest. So now is the time. And as listeners might know, I go to a lot of different conferences and meet people all over the country. So I certainly know some people in Iowa and Illinois and surrounding areas. So I'll be sure to let those people know about 99 counties for anyone who wants to learn more about 99 Counties, what's the web address where they can find it? It's 99, the numbers, 99counties.com. And then all the social handles too, it'll pop right up. Perfect. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on. Happy New Year to you and to everyone listening. And I th hope this inspires people to go out and learn more about their food. Yeah, I hope so too. I like to be inspired and I really hope that this inspires those listening and hopefully all together we can get healthier. Uh, starts with the soil, right? Soil, farmer, artisan, food maker, and it ends with us. It's all just energy, right? We're in a cycle. It's not linear. Our money and attention to paying the people to do that is a cyclical regenerative, right, experience and system. So think about your money as energy. And if you give your energy back, it will serve you. Absolutely. Some great notes to end on. Thank you so much for coming on the program. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Appropriate Omnivore. New episodes of the show are released every Wednesday. Follow me on social media for more information on the next episode. And to make sure you never miss any of my podcasts, go subscribe to The Appropriate Omnivore on your favorite podcast site or app. You can also listen to all of my podcasts on my website, appropriateomnivore.com. There you can find recipes from the guests I interview, plus all of my articles covering lifestyles in the world of real food. Until next time, my pantry is officially closed.